truths. Leave no unguarded place. We, we cannot uh, relax, not this side of, of glory. Uh, the tempter is ever at work looking to discourage, distract, bring dismay, disappointment, uh, deflecting us, derailing us. Uh, he is always at work. He never sleeps. Uh, he never slumbers. And we need to leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole. Well, we're looking at this uh, encounter that Jesus Christ himself has uh, with the fiend of hell, uh, Beelzebub, the prince of, uh, of darkness. In Genesis, right at the very start of creation, he enters into the garden and he tempts Adam. And uh, Adam falls, and Adam's fall is my fall. We all fell in Adam. Adam's sin is my sin. In Adam, we all sinned. Adam's death is my death. We all died in Adam. As in Adam, all died. And he fell in paradise, a wonderful garden with God's plentitude around about him. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but in comes the devil in the guise of the serpent. And so plausible, uh, speaking to Eve and getting at Adam and the two of them falling there in the garden. And as at the start of Genesis, so at the start of the Gospels, we have the second Adam, the last Adam who comes into the fight. And this passage here is so crucial because we don't just read it and think about it and preach on it as an academic exercise. Jesus Christ is there now as the last Adam. He's representing you and me. Uh, we sang in the first hymn, He fights for breath. He fights for me. And what he does here as he faces the fiend of hell, he does it on my behalf. He's representing you. He's representing me. I've had the joy of reading recently uh, Milton's Paradise Regained. I'd never read it before. I tried to read Paradise Lost. It's a little bit fanciful. It's a little bit difficult with its language and lots of flights of, of fancy and things you would certainly wouldn't find in the Bible. But I believe in uh, Paradise Regained. Uh, Milton has been uh, mightily used. And I commend it to you. I recommend reading it. It is quite remarkable, as uh, Milton puts in poetic form, this epic battle that took place, not in a beautiful garden, but in a wilderness, not in a place of plenty, but a place of great desolation. Well, let's think about the the scene then. We looked at the first two temptations. We're coming to verses 9 through to 12. What Luke has here, inspired by the Spirit, is the final uh, temptation. Verse 9, And he, the devil, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem, the very centre of uh, Israel. And uh, he set him on the pinnacle of, 
of the temple. The very center of Judaism now is in the center of Israel, Jerusalem, the center of Jerusalem, the temple, the temple built on the temple mount with the, uh, a sheer uh, cliff down one side in, into a valley, and there is the temple set on the pinnacle, and on the highest point of the temple, uh, the devil sets the Lord Jesus Christ. So the center of Israel and the center of Judaism, the devil plants the Lord Jesus Christ there. It is a great height. Now, I haven't measured it personally, uh, but I've done a little bit of background reading. And from the pinnacle of the temple down into the depths of the valley below, around about 140 meters. It's a giddy height, a tremendous height. And I don't like heights. So I don't go on these big rides at... Uh, the fairgrounds and the, the, the theme parks. I like the little gentle ones. And uh, we went to Disneyland Paris a few years ago when uh, William was, uh, I think he was around about three and the, uh, the oldest one, Ben, he'd be about 12 and the, the other kids there. And uh, my favorite ride was, it's a small world after all. It's great. You go through and it's a lovely song as you go through and you see all the Disney characters there. It's a small world after all. And I really, I went and uh, William who was three said again, again. I was glad to go around again and again with William. But the older kids were up on these. I just can't stomach them. Great heights, fast movement. And he set Jesus on the highest pinnacle. A great, great height. Tradition tells us that uh, the Apostle James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, was hurled down from that pinnacle uh, to his death. A great height. He places him there. And again, at the center of attention, a place where all could see him. So there's the scene taken from the desert wilderness and set. Now, whether this is again in a vision, as we thought last time, or physically, we don't have to come to any great conclusion, but the temptation is very, very real. And here's the temptation now, the second part of verse 9. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. If you are the Son of God. Again, that insinuation the devil will always want to put doubts in your mind. The Lord Jesus wants to assure you. He is the good shepherd. Uh, he wants you to know that you are his and he is yours. He wants you to be able to say, mine, 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 I know thou art mine. The devil hates that. For when you have a blessed assurance through the word and by the spirit, you are a powerful and formidable force under the hand of God. But if you are racked with doubts, then you tend to shrink and you're unsure. And the devil comes wanting to pervade doubts if you are the son of God. But the father has just recently said to Jesus Christ, you are my son. With you I am well pleased. The devil says, if and God says, you are. Now listen to the word of God. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his child. So Jesus doesn't even deal with the insinuation if he knows that he is the son of God. But if you are, says the devil, throw yourself down 
from this great height. For, the devil continues, for it is written. It is written. Jesus in the first two temptations has been skillfully using the Bible. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now watch him closely. Watch Jesus. Follow him. He's fighting for you in the garden there, in the desert there. He's fighting for me. But do watch him and follow him because the tempter will come your way. It's very unlikely, as we said, for it to be him personally, but he has many cohorts uh, who serve him. So watch how Jesus responds and learn from him. Jesus has been skillfully using the Bible. And now, the audacity of it all, Satan begins to use the same weapon against Jesus. <laughs> Throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and it is written, he quotes to him accurately, Psalm 91. There's no deviation used by the devil. Now the devil knows the Bible really, really well. And this is where he has the advantage over you and me, because we're so sketchy, we're so shallow. The devil is an expert, he's been studying it, and you and me for millennia. He knows the word of God, Jesus has been using it, now Satan quotes it accurately back at him. And he quotes two parts of Psalm 91. Throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. The audacity of this fiend from the depths of hell shouldn't take us by surprise. Here's Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And verse 11, here's a principle now. So that we would not, says Paul, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. He's saying to the church at Corinth, you need to show forgiveness to this man uh, so that we won't be outwitted by Satan, for... Now here's what he says, here's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. We, as a group of Christians, are not ignorant of his designs, his wiles, and his ways, and his methods. Now, I wonder if the same could be said of you and me. Are we aware of his ways, and his wiles, and his designs? Are we, are we like dukes, caught like rabbits in their headlights, just startled when he begins to act, as he will do, against us personally and as a church. Or, says Paul, we're not ignorant of his designs. And then later on in the same letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. It's exactly what Satan is doing here with Jesus. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
if he appears all the time in all the, with all the horrors of hell, you know, the cartoon depictions, now he's just not like that with the horns and the forked tail and the pitchfork, but it's a caricature of, of horror. Now, if he appeared to you like that, you wouldn't be unaware and you would respond and you'd cry out to God. But what he will do is look to appear in a very plausible way, even using the scriptures, and he will come with a smile. And one of the things I've loved about reading Milton is that uh, initially, in the wilderness there, when the devil comes to him, Milton describes him as a very plausible elderly gentleman who comes for a quiet chat with the hungry Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to give a helping hand. But Jesus knows exactly who it is. Do you? Do I? Now, note this again. Satan is not misquoting the Bible, but what he is doing is misapplying the Bible. He's taking the Scripture, he's quoting it accurately. He could say, I can give you chapter and verse on this. Now, make sure he can't run rings around you. Know the Bible well. Know the Bible well. He's not misquoting He's misapplying. If you are the Son of God, or you could put it, since you are the Son of God, I accept you are who you claim to be. Or we could even think, it is the doubt on Satan's part. I've heard the prophecies, I know the prophecies. Is this the one? If you are the Son of God. I want some assurance on this. But if you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, your father loves you dearly. You can hear his voice still echoing. I was there by the river as you were baptized. I heard that voice. Since you are, if you are, he loves you. He said he loves you. Then throw yourself down. Because he will guard you and he will keep you. Plus, let me have this. There he is in the center of Jerusalem on the pinnacle of the temple. Many people present, make a public display of yourself. Captivate the people. May they see this great display of who you are. Satan saying to Jesus, do you really trust God? Now he may push you that way. Prove that you trust God. Do you really trust God? Jesus, then you, you prove it. Put yourself in danger now, and do it now. Do it now. Satan will always try and encourage you to be impatient. You want something, you want it now. And that's something of the spirit of sin and of the age. I want it and I want it now. The instant and the now. The spirit of God is working on us as a church and as individuals. If we are his people, then one of the graces that develops is the grace of patience and the patience that comes from grace. Galatians 5 and 22, love, joy, peace. Patience, patience. This comes from trusting uh, in the Lord. But Satan saying, make a spectacle of yourself now. Demonstrates God, demonstrate God's love to you. Now put yourself in danger uh, now and God will save you 
and rescue you. Now, in the ultimate danger, God will rescue the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did it on Calvary. As he went through that dreadful storm for you and for me, he fights for breath, he fights for me, loosing sinners from the claims of hell. Hell will have sinners. I claim him. Jesus says, not yours, mine. I died in his place. And Jesus goes into the eye of the storm in God's time, not in Satan's time. There's the temptation. And here comes the steady reply. And we've used this cricketing analogy uh, throughout this section. If you're not a cricket fan, um, I do apologize. But I do enjoy uh, watching a good game of, of cricket and one of the most fearsome opponents of the, uh, the batsman is the, uh, the skillful spin bowler. Which way is the ball going to go? It's going to hit the pitch. Is it going to go left, right, straight on? Will it bounce? Will it stay low? Tries to watch the bowler's arm. Tries to watch the ball in flight, he's got one of two choices. Back and watch the ball, see which way it moves. Can he respond quick enough? Forward, get to the pitch of the ball, smother the spin. Concentrating, focusing, using all the skill that he's acquired. Jesus once again, the ball comes down. Powerful one, cunning. Spinning this way, that way, up, down. Faster, slower, air, not so much air. Watches it closely. Every skillful batsman eventually gets out. There isn't a batsman anywhere on planet Earth who's gone throughout his whole career without, without ever being out. It just doesn't happen. It's never going to happen. But Jesus Christ, not out. Not out. He watches the ball carefully, head down, and he meets this temptation with a straight back right in the middle and quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Simple, wonderful, powerful temptation. Throw yourself down for he has commanded his angels to guard you and watch over you, lest you strike your foot against a rock. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Tremendous, wonderful, helpful principle for Jesus and for you and for me. But sum it up in this way. Do not tempt the providence of God. Oh, he is a sovereign protector over his people. He's guarding all the affairs of governments, the rise and the fall of nations, but in particular, he's watching over you and I as his people. We are the apple of his eye. He loves us dearly. Oh, Lord, keep me as the apple of thine eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wing. Do not tempt the providence of God. Here we have the Lord Jesus Christ facing these temptations. Jesus, to remind ourselves who he is. One person. He's not a split personality. 
He is one person. He is the person of the eternal Son of God. And the eternal Son of God, fully divine, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, takes to himself humanity. Without any change in the being of God at all, he joins himself to humanity in a wonderful union. Human body, human nature, no mixing of uh, divinity with humanity, but in the one person, two natures, fully divine, fully human. He really is a man. mustn't forget that. He really is a man. He's not a human person. He's the divine person, the Son of God, but he really is a human being. Here he is, one person, two natures, fully man, fully God. Jesus will not use his innate power as God to help himself eat, make these stones become bread. He will trust in God. He will feed others, but he'll not use his innate power to feed himself. He will trust God, nor will he here put himself in danger or harm's way, expecting divine intervention. I'll not throw myself off the pinnacle. Puts my humanity in great danger. His divinity is in no danger at all. He remains the eternal Son of God. I will not put my human body in great danger at your say, Satan, and expect my Father to intervene on my behalf. But do note this. We'll come to it shortly in Luke chapter 4. Because there were times when divine intervention did come to his aid. Just look at Luke chapter 4 a little bit further on. Verses 29 and 30. He's been in the synagogue. He's been preaching. The crowd there get angry and they take him out of the town, up on a hillside to the edge of a cliff and they would throw him off the cliff. Here it is, verse 29. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. So here he is, one weak human being, a great crowd of people, murderous intent to throw him over the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. How did that happen? How could that happen? He'll not throw himself. He'll not tempt the providence of his father. But when he is in danger... It's not his time. He's not going to die by being thrown off a cliff by an angry mob. No, there is an appointed time and he will be delivered to Calvary by his father. But on this occasion, God's stepping in and he walks through the crowd. A little bit like Peter then in the book of Acts. There he is in prison. The doors open and he walks straight past the guards who are totally unaware, and ends up back safe with the Lord's people. Ultimately, the Lord will be delivered to Calvary, and it's there he has been appointed to die on behalf of sinners, where there on Calvary he fights for breath, and physically he would have fought for his breath 
every breath being agony. He fights for breath. He fights for me, loosing sinners from the claims of hell. And with a shout, Tetelestai, it is finished, accomplished, paid on the nail. Our souls are free, death defeated by Emmanuel. No, it won't be at the devil's behest that he will die. But it will be at the appointed time. Well, there's the scene and there's the temptation. Now, some brief applications in conclusion. Number one, as the Lord's people, we need to be wise. Wise up. There are false prophets in the church of the living God. There are false prophets in the evangelical church. Beware, says Jesus, of false prophets. And they will... Use the Scriptures accurately. This morning, they will be in pulpits like this. They will be on television screens like the ones you're watching at home. And Jesus says, beware of false prophets. They will use the Bible accurately, but they will be misapplying it to bring great grief. Let me go back to that section in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We need to know... Scriptures such as these, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such men, says Paul, are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. (laughs) No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Servants of of righteousness. Quoting the Bible accurately. Let's take that principle. Now there are some false prophets who are obvious false prophets. Jesus says, though, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. I've seen lots of sheep over the last week or, or week or two. Now, to me, a sheep looks like a sheep. I don't know how a shepherd, but apparently a shepherd knows he can distinguish. Oh, that's Albert. That's Fred. That's Cynthia. Why? Well, I, I wouldn't have a. I wouldn't have a clue. They, a sheep looks like a, a sheep to me. But uh, if a wolf put wool on itself and uh, disguise itself as a sheep, Jesus says, "Beware of such, because they are ravenous and will wreak havoc." Beware of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, a wolf in wolf's clothing is no problem to the Christian. (laughs) That's obvious. So if somebody came preaching here, Jesus Christ was just a man. He was not the Son of God. You wouldn't be taken in. If a man came here preaching, Jesus' death on the cross was an example of suffering and how to trust God in the midst of suffering. I'd say amen, but if that's all you're going to say, you're a wolf, because his death was vicarious. He dies on behalf of sinners, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, that when the trumpet sounds and the sky shall part, it's not the whole fear of hell, it's the hope of heaven for me. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, we wouldn't be fooled by such men. 
And yet there will be on the TV screens, and not just on YouTube and Zoom, but on national main networks. And they'll be preaching things right now, and quoting the Bible, and talking about Abraham, how prosperous he was, how rich and wealthy he was. They'll talk about King David, how uh, wealthy and prosperous he was, because he trusted the Lord. And they'll say, every Christian should be healthy, uh, so no need to take the vaccine. Every Christian should be healthy, just trust God. Wealthy, if you're poor, I'll tell you why you're poor, you lack faith. If you want that promotion at work, pray, ask, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open. Doesn't the Bible say? It is written. And they're quoting accurately but they're failing to tell you about the Apostle Paul who prayed three times that God might remove this thorn in the flesh from him. And God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. I will not remove this thorn in the flesh. You need this thorn, Paul, to keep you humble. Otherwise, you will be proud and conceited. So I'm sending this into your flesh. And what about the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Foxes have their holes, birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. Did he lack faith? Did Paul lack faith? No, we need to beware. Oh, but I heard it. Pastor so-and-so said it. Read the Bible. Know it well. Know it accurately. Then there are other preachers who will talk, oh, the love of God. How marvellous, how, how wonderful. Every sermon is on the love of God. There'll be no mention of sin, no mention of hell, no mention of joy, the love of God. And we say amen to the love of God. But what about justice and wrath? What about the need for the sacrifice of Christ? And then there are others who just major on the wrath and the judgment of God. And highlight that continually. Well, there's no balm of mercy, no balm of Calvary. And here's the problem. Satan will want to get us out of balance. In the Christian life, there needs to be balance continually. Satan will throw us from one side to another, but we need to be in balance. Other men will preach today and they'll not mention the gospel. They'll never get to the cross well, what was the point of preaching? What was the point of the church service? If you never get to the cross of Christ, what was the point of gathering at all? Because the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ and Him crucified from Genesis to Revelation. If a sermon doesn't get to Christ on Calvary, it hasn't been a Christian sermon. It's been a lecture, it's been interesting, you've taught some doctrine, but you haven't brought Christ crossless Christianity. The crossless... You you get men as well who preach about Christ but miss out the cross, the crossless Christ. And then there'll be those who preach the cross of Christ but it's at no cost. So it's the costless Christ. Cheap Christianity. Be saved and live as you like. It's not in the Bible. Take up your cross and follow after me. Then others will preach with what Paul is inspired to call worldly 
wisdom. And Paul says, away with that, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what we do is we take the Bible, the whole Bible. That's why in a church like this we use what we call expository preaching. Because if you're just left to a text that uh, draws your fancy, you'll be on your pet subjects week in and week out. But the discipline, so mornings, Luke, evenings, Romans. We've been in my 21 years through many books of the Bible. Occasionally I'll do a subject, but that discipline of exposing the Scripture to my soul and to your soul is of great, great worth. False prophets, wake up, wise up. How do we spot a true prophet? What you will look for as we search for a new pastor and what you'll look for if you're going... See, so easily, I'll go on the internet and I'll listen to so-and-so. How do you know that so-and-so is going to be a help to your soul? Well, have a think about so-and-so. Have a look at so-and-so. Read the background of so-and-so. Look at the life of so-and-so. For the true prophet, there has to be humility. With the false prophet who thinks he knows it all and displays his knowledge, there'll be a proud pride and there'll be arrogance. The, the know-all, the one who doesn't need to learn things, the one who'll never say that he's wrong or admit that he's wrong or made an error. Uh, what he says is actually the truth and everybody else is wrong. The centrality of the cross I will always hold on to, but I'm willing to admit that my Presbyterian brother might be right in the final analysis. I'm willing, are you willing to accept that? That Baptist reform, Baptist could be wrong. Is it possible, Mr. Williams? Is it possible? Could it be? Yes, it could be. It could be. Only God knows. And on that day, we'll. Oh, why did I make such a fuss about that? He really wasn't worth making a fuss about at all. Well, let's make a fuss about the cross. The person of Christ and his work. That's all that matters. And when the trumpet sounds, does it matter I'm a Presbyterian or a Baptist or an Episcopalian? Whatever, it doesn't matter. God could even save a Roman Catholic. <laughs> oh, humility, humility. So for, for us that we're not fooled, know the Bible well, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So every day, read your Bible, say your prayers. I've mentioned that's the most important thing I've ever, ever heard as a Christian in 45 years. The day of my conversion, have I mentioned it? Someone said to me, every day, read your Bible, say your prayers. Do you read your Bible every day? Children, do you read your, does mum and dad, do mum and dad read your Bible, the Bible to you? Do you read it yourselves? Every day. And when you're converted, keep reading it, keep reading it. Our only hope is Christ, we find him through the word. But don't only know the Bible well. That can make you proud and arrogant. Know Jesus Christ well. And he will make you humble. And humility always wins. Secondly and finally, I think it's finally now. Yeah, final point. Beware of a false trust. So beware of false prophets. Beware of a false trust. Use the common means of grace that God has provided before you rely on his special providence. So, if it's cold, put your coat on. 
That's common sense. It's easy, isn't it? If it's cold, put your coat on. God will take care of me. I won't get a cold. Put your coat on. If you're going on your bike, children, what do you wear on your head? Helmet. Helmet. Yeah. Put your cycle helmet on. Oh, God will take care. Put your cycle helmet on. If you're going fast on that scooter, grandchildren make me really nervous, whizzing down a hill. Where's your helmet? I'm not going so fast. Put your helmet on. If you've got a headache, God will help me. Might well. Take the paracetamol. Follow the COVID regulations. Oh, God will take care of me. Follow the regulations, my friend. Follow the regulations. Insure your car. God will take care of me. The law says you should insure your car. Insure your car. Common sense says insure your car. Keep the speed limits. Oh, I haven't got a job, but God will provide. Get a job. Get a job. Do not put yourself in danger expecting God to step in. But if the core, in the cause of following Christ, if that brings you into danger, he is able to rescue you from that danger. Not that he will, but he is able. Maybe it's your time to depart and go somewhere far better. If not, you're immortal till God takes you. <laughs> and then you truly are immortal and him taking us is only falling asleep anyway so we are immortal he is Shadrach Meshach and Abednego it's not their fault they will not bow down to the statue quite right Nebuchadnezzar is very very angry if you don't bow down I will have you thrown into the fiery furnace Shadrach Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now listen now, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego Nebuchadnezzar, God is able, we're pretty sure, we're sure he will. But even if he doesn't, we are not going to worship the idol that you have set up. God is able, not saying he will. Peter, released from prison miraculously. James loses his head from the same prison a few days earlier. Peter is released, the providence of God. We trust God. James, straight to glory. Peter, many more years of trials on planet Earth. Listening in the midweek meeting in our home group to a pastor from Myanmar. He had family in India. He has family in India. And the family is saying, come to India. It's safe here. Bring your wife. Bring your children. He's tempted. He's praying. No. Who will then feed the flock here? Who will look after the children's home? Who will look after the local hospital? We will stay here in Myanmar in the face of the howl of hell and persecution. And if God takes me, so be it. But here we will stay and serve the Lord. God is able. 
And ultimately, he will rescue us all because he has. And that's the gospel. Ultimately, there it is, the eye of the storm, Calvary, where Jesus Christ rescues sinners from the claims of hell. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live on our behalf. He endured the temptation in the wilderness. There's this verse coming now. The devil leaves him to a more opportune time. We'll think about that, God willing, next Sunday. Uh, get thee behind me, Satan. He even uses the apostle uh, Peter. Uh, Gethsemane, Calvary. And there he faces full throttle the horrors uh, of hell. The wrath of God against the sins of wicked, fallen mankind is hurled and placed on his son. Here is the glorious gospel. And he died, but he rose again. He's victorious over death, hell, sin, and trusting in him alone. My friends, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? The command in response to the gospel is repent. Children, repent. Children, believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear his word and trust in him. And you shall be saved. Don't doubt his word. Don't let the devil bring doubts your way. Believe the word of Christ. He has said you are his child. Trust in him and you will be saved. And if you have been saved, keep near to him. Tonight we're entering Romans chapter 12, the practical part of the letter. If Romans uh, 11 was difficult, I'm going to find Romans 12 onwards even more difficult because this is where the rubber hits the road. It becomes intensely practical. There is a cost to Christianity. It is not costless. If you've got the cheap version, don't keep it. Make sure you get the real thing. That's very, very costly. Christ paid a great price to redeem us and we live our lives now in grateful worship to the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for a brief time in your word. We pray, Lord, you keep us from the wiles of Satan. Give us your armour of light, we pray, uh, even now, individually as families and as a church family. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.